Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. We want to continue as promised after the first of the year. Continue our journey through the book of Revelation. And uh, looking this morning at approaching hoofbeats. The beginning of the end. Approaching hoofbeats. The beginning of the end. Now let me say something about your sermon note page this morning. It's not really for you to use in the service. Please don't read through it while I'm preaching, okay? Uh, that's, for, that's a reference guide for you to have later on this week and it'll review in summary the things I'm going to talk about today. There'll be no PowerPoint presentation today as we'll just uh, be moving through the six seals. But hopefully that page will help you to kind of reassemble some of the things I'm going to talk to you about this morning. Okay? Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Verse 1. Now, now watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, With a loud voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living, a fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked. And behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Father, as we read this chapter, I think of what chapter 1 
told us. It said, blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now, Father, as we read the bad news this morning in chapter 6, it is a reminder to us that we need to receive the good news. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we thank You for those that have received the good news can avoid the bad news. But it's a reminder to us the urgency of the hour. And I pray that everyone who hears this morning will be ready. They'll be watching and waiting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we continue the vision that John started with back in chapter 4. And of course we know that vision in chapter 4 continued right into chapter 5. And in chapter 5 we saw that vision of him who is seated upon the throne. And that was God the Father. And we were told there that the one seated upon the throne had in his hand a, a scroll and it was sealed with six seals. And an announcement was made or an invitation if you will for anyone to be able to come and take the scroll out of the hand of the one seated on the throne. And a search was made in heaven and no one was found who was worthy. And so the scripture tells us there that John began to weep and in the middle of his weeping he was told to weep not. For the Lamb had overcome and John was pointed to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus went over to the throne of him seated there and took the scroll out of his hand. Now the one who took the scroll to him was given the authority to break the scroll open, to open it, to break each seal and open it and begin executing the events contained therein. Now what wonderful chapters those were on heaven. It's a reminder to us of how glorious heaven is going to be. But today we turn a very important corner. We move from scenes of joy to scenes of judgment. From scenes of worship to scenes of warfare. Chapter 6 begins the seven year period of time that is referred to as the tribulation. Jeremiah 30 refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Now we know that the last three and a half years of that seven year period are also referred to as the great tribulation. And that's the subject of chapter 6 through 19 in Revelation. The tribulation and the great tribulation, this seven year span of time. 
Now, as I've said before, I agree with those interpreters who say that the church has been taken out of here before chapter 6. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that, but you better hope that I'm right. I believe the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church at the close of the times of the Gentiles. Now there's some overlap here with the book of Daniel and also what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that begins in Matthew 24. And so it really helps to lay all those passages down alongside of one another and and study them together and I hope you'll do some of that this week. Daniel spoke of 70 weeks. Now nearly all expositors believe that what Daniel was referring to was 70 weeks of years. How long is 70 weeks of years? Well, seven times seven, 70 times 7 equals 490 years. And so the angel was telling Daniel that a period of 490 years would pass before God's purposes for Israel were complete. And in fact, in the book of Daniel chapter 9, we even see that 70-week time span split into three sections. There were the seven weeks, the 62 weeks, and then the one week, which shows up in Daniel 9, 27. Daniel 9.25 tells us when when the divine clock would begin. The clock would begin when the decree was issued for the Jews to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the city walls and the temple. Now when you study Daniel 9, you see that from the signing of the decree down to the cutting off of the Messiah, there would be 483 years. But remember, 77s were prophesied. And that means we still have one week to go or seven years to go to account for. Scholars believe that after 69 weeks, Israel's clock, prophetic clock, stopped. Now we can relate to that. This afternoon we'll watch football games. 60 minutes in a football game, but will the football game last 60 minutes? No, it'll last about four hours. And in the middle of that 60 minutes, a referee or a coach or a player may call time out. And we don't know when the clock is going to resume, but we do know it is going to resume. Well, we're in a pause between the 69th and the 70th week. We call it the church age. Romans 11 has a lot to say about that. Paul talks about the Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew, being like a wild olive branch that is being grafted in to the olive tree. We're in that time period of the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And and yes, most certainly there are some Jews coming to faith in Christ, but by and large they are not. By and large, the Jewish people are still rejecting their Messiah. But something is going to happen to get their prophetic clock ticking again. 
I think it's going to be the rapture. And that is going to usher in the seven year tribulation or the last week of Daniel, the 70th week. And the Jews are going to have a wake up call. In Daniel 9, 26, Daniel speaks of great desolations that are going to happen upon the face of the earth. And those great desolations are the subject matter of Revelation chapter 6 all the way down through chapter 19. Jesus spoke of all this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Look at what Jesus said beginning in verse 5. He said, For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end shall come. Now folks, by the way, that doesn't have to take place before the rapture. You see, the gospel is going to be preached during the seven year tribulation and before Revelation 19, but I don't think there's anything preventing Jesus from coming back maybe even today. Well, Jesus continues here. He says in verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. During that time, many Jews are going to come to Christ. Revelation 7 is going to talk more about that. Daniel 9, 27 goes on to speak of a figure known as the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be some great world ruler. He's somebody who initially promises peace on the earth. He helps broker some kind of peace treaty or covenant in the Middle East with Israel. And and in that treaty, Israel will be allowed to rebuild their temple. By the way, they have everything set and, and, and ready to restart that rebuilding process. They've not had a temple since it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And they're setting on go right now, ready to rebuild it. They're ready to go as soon as they get the word. 
Now, then in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, or after three and a half years, the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel, and thus will begin the last three and a half years of the tribulation, spoken of as the Great Tribulation. And then at the end of that period, Jesus is going to come back, Revelation 19, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and thus he will begin the everlasting righteousness that Daniel 9, 24 referred to. But back to today. This is where the 70th week of Daniel begins. It's the tribulation and this is the section that occupies the lion's share of the book of Revelation. Now let me see if I can help you understand a little better, maybe get a visual of what we're going to encounter in the book of Revelation. There's going to be three series of judgments broken out upon the world. There's the, there's the seals. And then there's the trumpets, and then there's the bowls. And we see that as one is done, it leads right into the other and right into the other. Now imagine yourself standing on a beach somewhere, and you're watching the tide roll in. One wave is coming in right after another. Now let's say you're standing there and a hurricane is forecast to make landfall pretty soon. What would you see? You would see a rapidity, uh, an increasing rapidity in in the waves coming in. And also as they're coming in more and more and faster and faster, you would likewise see a growing intensity in those waves. Now that's what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Each series of waves is a little more intense than the series before. The first series of waves would be the seven seals that that we'll begin looking at today. And and then then the trumpets and then the bowls. Now that means that chapter 6, chapters 8 through 9, and chapter 16 form the chronological order of the book of Revelation. And then right in the middle of those events you have chapters that serve as a kind of pause. And those chapters record events that are very important to our understanding of the tribulation, but they're not necessarily in the nice, neat orders that the other chapters are in. In fact, they may contain information that overlaps more than one series of waves. For example, the events of chapter 7 are believed to span the whole entire seven-year period. Now Charles Ryrie explains it this way, lest your mind is sort of confused at this point. Ryrie says these chapters are a lot like a telephone conversation. They start telling the story in in order, chapter 6, but soon there's an interruption to fill in some information, chapter 7. Then the order of events is resumed, chapters 8 and 9, only to return to some more fill-in information chapters 10 to 15 
There is then a return to the progressive order of events, chapter 16, and finally more detail, chapters 17 to 19. He says sometimes the fill-in material runs ahead of the storyline. At other times it backs up to add or emphasize pertinent information. Now folks, as we look at this section in the book of Revelation, you need to understand something. The Bible tells us that the world is not headed toward peace and unity, but, but toward a final cataclysmic war, the battle of Armageddon. And until then, things will continue to deteriorate as the world falls deeper and deeper into sin. As the end approaches, war is going to increase. Crime is going to escalate. There's going to be economic upheavals and and unprecedented natural disasters such as earthquakes and, and floods and famines and disease. Jesus called this the beginning of birth pain. And all of this is going to be the pouring out of God's wrath on an unbelieving world. Now as we look at the beginning of the unfolding of the seals, it's amazing how it parallels Jesus' words in Matthew 24 that we read a moment ago. Now the first four seals make up a unity. There are four horsemen. We see God's wrath here being like horses in the gate ready to be unleashed, ready to be set free. Now notice with me, first of all, the white horse. The first seal is it's broken, the white horse. Back to verses 1 and 2, John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now one of the interpretive challenges of the book of Revelation is the identity of this first horse, the rider on this first horse. Who is he? Now some say it's not one person but any number of rulers of nations in the end of times who suddenly start to flex their muscles. They threaten violence and war and hence the bow. Now if that's true, you could make a case that we're beginning to see the start of this even now. Others feel that it's a picture of the Lord Jesus. Still others feel like it is a picture of the Antichrist. Now I definitely feel like it is not a picture of the Lord Jesus but rather of the Antichrist. And reasons I say that, number one, as for the Lamb, He opens the seals and so He would not be one of the riders. To say it's the Antichrist follows the pattern we've already seen in Matthew 24. Jesus said the first thing that would happen would be the arrival of false Christ. Those who think it's Jesus do so on on the basis of the rider on the white horse in chapter 19 who is in fact Jesus. But folks, when you lay the two passages down alongside of one another, the differences are greater than the similarities. Now I want you to notice something about this person. What does he have in his hand? He has a bow. 
Not a sword as in Revelation 19, but a bow. Now what this suggests is he comes initially offering peace. At first he's kind of like Barney Fife, no bullet in his gun. It's more like Cold War victories that he wins through diplomacy. Daniel 9, 26 through 27 talks about the prince who is to come. He makes a covenant with Israel to protect her and bring peace. And in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, he breaks this covenant. He puts a stop to sacrifice. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And so the false peace that Antichrist brings will come to an abrupt halt at the midpoint of the tribulation when he desecrates the temple in Jerusalem, betrays the Jewish people, and he launches deadly attacks on them. And according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, most people are going to follow him because God sends a delusion upon them so that they will believe everything that he says and that he does. This too is judgment because they would not listen to God's truth. You see, if they will not listen to God's truth, he will see to it that they will believe Satan's lie. And so right as the tribulation period is beginning, there's going to be a leader on the world scene who promises peace and everybody thinks he's the one that can bring it. But but time everything is said and done, he's going to cause untold grief for the people of God who were alive during the tribulation. Now the second seal, the red horse, verses 3 and 4. John says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now the red horse symbolizes bloodshed. The reign of Antichrist, which begins in peace, turns into massive bloodshed on the earth. There's going to come a time of fighting such as this world has never seen before and this is signified by the point that he is given a great sword. There are going to be civil wars all over the place. Jesus said nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Some of you men and ladies here have witnessed firsthand the devastation of warfare. But can you imagine the devastation of warfare that breaks out in little pockets all over the globe, especially given some of our modern weaponry today? It's going to be like nothing that the world has ever seen before. And then thirdly, there's the black horse, verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Black in the Bible is often associated with famine. In Lamentations 5.10 the Bible says our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Folks, what is it that so oftentimes follows war? It's famine. 
And that happens because food supplies are destroyed and many things associated with the production of food and the distribution of food are also destroyed. In fact, famine kills more people than war ever does. In 1946, the year following World War II, more people died uh, on the globe in 1946 than in all the six years previous as we were fighting World War II. Starvation is one of the most terrible ways known to man to die. The Old Testament points out in a number of places that God often used famine to pour out His judgment on nations. Now what's different here is the scope of it. The pair of scales the writer carried pictures the rationing that will result from the famine. Can you imagine food rationing and bread lines that take place all over the globe? In verse 6 he talks about a quarter of wheat. That's barely enough to sustain a grown person for an entire day. And it was the amount of grain that if you were to cup both hands together and somebody poured grain into them, it was the amount of grain that could be poured into your your two hands. Just a meager amount of existence. And it says here that it's going to be a denarius, that is a day's wages back then in ancient times. A day's wages that it's going to take even to purchase the amount of food that you will need for your very existence that day. That's how severe the famine's going to be. But even in the midst of it, God says here, do not harm the oil and the wine. There's a limit that he puts on the famine. Now some commentators here will make a distinction. They talk about oil and wine being in the homes in ancient times of those who were wealthier. And so they would say in this worldwide famine may be an indication here that the wealthier are, are, are going to fare a little better than everybody else. But I'm not sure it's making that distinction. I think what God is communicating here is simply there is going to be a limit to the, to the famine. Yes, it's going to be bad. It's going to be uh, widespread. But God's going to put a limit to it. Now fourthly we see the pale horse. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. The rider on this horse is Death, and Hades right behind. Now, folks, you can see the intensity building. First, there was false peace. Then there was warfare. And then there was famine. But with this one, they're sort of all rolled together. The rider is given authority to kill by sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And the result of this, he says, that over one-fourth of the world's population will die. Could you imagine today almost two billion people laying dead? 
All the graves and cremation and, and, and all the, uh, the disease that results from that. He talks about wild beasts here. Rats can be included in wild beasts. Rats have killed more people than any other beast throughout history. All the diseases that they carry. And John is saying this is a picture of what is going to happen one day. And, and death and Hades will be there. Death for the body and hell for the soul. If you will not acknowledge the love of God, if you will not appropriate the grace of God, if you will not accept the Son of God, you will not avoid the wrath of God. It's that simple. There is coming a time that the door of grace is going to be shut just like in Noah's day. And once the door is shut, it is going to be eternally too late. And that's why the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can come to God by faith today and find love and forgiveness and peace and grace and mercy. But if you refuse that, the only thing left is the judgment of God. Billy Graham wrote in a book on Revelation entitled Approaching Hoofbeats. He said, how near are the horsemen right now? I do not know. All I can say with certainty is that every sign points to one fact. The hoofbeats of the four horsemen are approaching, sounding louder and louder every day. And that is why I've entitled this book Approaching Hoofbeats. Because the indication of God's judgments are growing stronger and stronger with each passing hour. And then there's the fifth seal, the martyrs. Look at verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Look at the way they're described here in verse 9. They're souls under the altar. When the Old Testament priest presented an animal sacrifice, the victim's blood was, was poured out at the base of the brazen altar and it ran underneath. In, in the Old Testament, blood symbolized life. And so here in the book of Revelation, the souls of the martyrs under the altar indicate that they've given their lives because of their witness for Jesus Christ. It's kind of like what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 6 that his life was being poured out as a drink offering to God. Now who are they? It seems best to simply designate them as tribulation saints. In, in chapter 7 we're going to be introduced to the Jewish element of them. And they were martyred, verse 9 says, because of the word of God, because of the testimony that they had maintained. Now, the Greek word martus is interesting. It gives us our English word martyr, which simply means witness. These saints were slain by the enemy because of their witness to the truth of God and the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's just like we're told later on in the book of Revelation, those who will not follow the beast, the Antichrist, those who will not receive the mark of the beast, they will die. 
But I want you to notice something very wonderful about them. Where are they? They are in heaven with God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They're safe. They're with God. They cry out for vengeance. Some have wondered about the legitimacy of their prayer. And they would say when we look at the New Testament and we see Jesus or we see Stephen in the book of Acts saying, Father, forgive them. They say it seems like this prayer for vengeance is kind of out of order. But what we need to understand is the time frame. Probably while they were on earth being attacked or being killed for their witness, they may have indeed been saying, Father, forgive them. But now that they're in heaven, they're just simply saying, Father, how long is all this going to be allowed to go on on the earth? How long before you make everything right and you avenge the blood of the saints? Haven't you ever felt that way before? God, how long is all this going to be allowed to go on this way? And God's response to them is He gives them a white robe, a a symbol of, of justification and holiness and purity, and that they're in a right standing with God. And so the message to these tribulation saints is, first of all, they have the full favor of God bestowed on them. It's almost as though God were saying to them, well done, here is your robe. But secondly, they're told to just rest and be patient. There are more To follow them. More to follow. And so God is pictured here as doing two things. Waiting on more to come into the fold. Giving people a chance. And secondly allowing the wicked who will not come in. Only to tighten the noose around their neck. So that they're without excuse. It's like God is allowing them to store up wrath against themselves. And God's telling these tribulation saints, you just need to be patient while I continue to work out my purposes. Folks, God knows what he's doing. His plan is right on schedule. The sixth seal, look again, verses 12 and following. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was great er- a great earthquake and the sun and the moon became as, as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. You know what's so amazing about the first five seals? What's so amazing about the first five seals is that there are still people who've not come to faith in Christ. They still, despite everything that God is doing, they still have a clenched fist in the face of God. Now the first five seals involved men or the Antichrist or wars and armies and all that. The sixth seal we see more of the direct intervention of God. There's six wonders that take place on the earth. And here's also where there's some overlaps in the judgments that run all the way down through chapter 19. 
I mean, you have these things taking place here in the sixth seal. See, in Revelation 13 and following, we're going to talk about economic catastrophe on the earth. Well, you have things like this happening, and no doubt it's going to cause economic catastrophe. And so some say this sixth seal represents things that happen all the way to the end. Verse 12, a great earthquake. There are now, even now as we speak, there are faults, earthquake faults, all underneath earth's surface. Do you know, according to the Geological Society, do you know how many earthquakes take place every year on planet earth? Somewhere between, depending on the year, somewhere between 1.5 million and 3 million. An earthquake is taking place every 11 seconds on the earth. Even now. Can you imagine this activity that somehow or another God allows to increase all over the globe? Verse 14 says mountains and islands are moved out of their place as a result of this. Dr. Henry Morris points out that with this activity going on all over the globe it would would be very likely for there to be great volcanic eruptions on a large scale as well and massive fires and these could account for the sun to appear darkened and the moon to appear red. Verse 13 refers to stars. The Greek word can indicate things like meteor showers with earthquakes, volcanoes, fires, atmospheric storms. The clouds are going to appear like somebody rolling up a scroll. It's almost identical to what Jesus says at the close of Matthew 24. Amazing parallels. And so with these seals being broken, we see war, famine, sickness, disease, natural disasters like never before. But the irony is, as verses 15 to 17 points out, while men are running and trying to hide, there's nowhere to hide. In fact, they want to hide in some of the very places that are being affected by these disasters. And yet, rather than running to God, they're running away from God. They're hiding. And yet, where can you hide from God? Nowhere. Folks, the irony here that men need to see the tribulation saints that have been tortured and killed, they're with God, they're safe, they're okay. But those on the earth who are alienated from God and they've been in control, they're not safe. They're not okay. They believe that God, now notice this in the text, they believe that God is the reason that all this is happening. And yet still, they don't repent and come to Him. Amazing. It it proves that unbelief Unbelief is not simply a matter of the mind, the reason. It's a matter of the heart. Some people have calloused hearts and no amount of reasoning, no amount of evidence will convince them. 
It's like at the end of, of chapter 9. We read the end of chapter 9 in verse 20. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In the midst of all this going on, they still have that fist in the face of God. Unbelievable. Now folks, obviously the lesson of this section of the book of Revelation is to be ready. Whether Jesus comes back for his bride this afternoon or it's a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, if people are ready, it won't matter. Because if you're ready, guess what? You'll be with the bridegroom. Are you ready? Are your loved ones ready? You see, when he comes before these events to take his children home, the Bible says he's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus said people will be marrying, they'll be giving in marriage, they'll be working their fields or their jobs, they'll be asleep in the bed. Suddenly the end comes, he takes his children home. Uh, he, he says that two will be working side by side, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be sleeping in the bed together, one will be taken, the other left. Which group are you going to be in? Don't be caught by surprise. Don't wait too late. The parable of the, of the foolish virgins in Matthew 25, they thought they could get ready once the bridegroom was on his way and they found out too late that they couldn't and they were left behind. They knocked, they knocked for entry. After the wedding party had already begun. You know, there's a wedding party coming, that marriage supper of the Lamb. And there they were on the outside saying, let us come too. And the bridegroom said, no, I never knew you. And that makes what the prophet Amos said very important. Amos said, prepare to meet thy God. Are you prepared? Secondly, I want you to realize something. God is one day going to make things right. The saints say, how long? How long? How long? Does God not see what's going on on, on planet earth? Does he not see what people are doing? Does he not see how people are suffering? Does he not see all the evil? Does he not see... What's happening? Yes, he does. And on his timetable, everything will be judged rightly. We can be assured of that. I want you to see also, history is not out of control. I want you to understand that. 
History is not like some airplane where the pilot has slumped over the wheel with a heart attack and the plane's just weaving and diving and climbing and there's no rhyme or reason to what happens before it crashes. That's not how history is. History is his story. And he's moving everything along according to his plan. Until that moment in time, he says, Son, go get your bride. I want to appeal to you this morning that if you don't know Christ, step out of the pew where you are and Come down the aisle closest to you and say, Pastor, I need Jesus. Don't wait. You have nothing to gain by waiting and potentially everything to lose. Don't gamble with your soul. Come to Jesus. For those who have done that, again, I want to assure you that the world is in God's hands. He's still on his throne.